Welcome guys, I know it has been a minute, you may notice that the podcast title has changed but we are True North Soccer. We'll be going into a little bit more detail on that in just a little bit but we'll be going over the new podcast format before we dive into fixtures that have happened over this past weekend. So what's the new podcast format? So mainly we'll be looking at European football as well as Canadian soccer. So anything that happens with Toronto FC or mainly the Canadian Premier League, but also the English Premier League and Champions League and all that kind of stuff alongside men's and women's national teams for Canada or just anything else we wish to talk about in the football world that may be trending or something that may be interesting to talk about. Yeah, we are broadening our horizons here at True North Soccer. So we're going to break it up into segments each episode. Look to do weekly episodes like we were doing before. Not too much longer than we were than we were doing before. We'll do our best with that. And yeah, and anything in the in the soccer world, anything that we deem relevant, it's uh, open to talk about. We do apologize for missing week one, but we'll be jumping right into week two of the English Premier League. We'll be talking about some of the main matches that happened, and we'll be recapping the weekend as a whole later on. Let's start off with arguably the biggest match of the weekend, Tottenham against Manchester United. You know, Tottenham rolled over Man United with two goals in the second half by Saar and Alessandro Martinez own goal from a shot from Ben Davies. Do you think questions should be asked of maybe Ten Hag and Manchester United in general like in terms of their recruitment? Or do you think, do you have confidence that things at United will settle down? Well, yeah, I got questions for for Manchester United and and Eric Ten Hag for sure. Uh, I I don't have a lot of confidence that it'll just settle down. I think there's there's deeper issues here. Um, I think you look at the midfield is the main thing. And that first match, obviously, you had Casemiro, Mason Mount, and Bruno Fernandes in a midfield three, and Casemiro was was quite exposed. Mason Mount, Bruno Fernandes, two players that are pretty much number 10s, and it kind of left Casemiro a bit, a bit isolated. Um, and also, Casemiro, remember, isn't getting any younger either. So there's that issue too. And then you look at the second game, Ten Hag changes it up. So you go with a 4-2-3-1 instead of the 4-3-3. Now you're putting Mason Mount as the number six alongside Casemiro in the double pivot with Bruno in front of them. And I don't think that suited Mason Mount at all. And I still think there was unbalance in that team. And I think they really struggled with the pressing intensity that Spurs bring under their new manager. So I have questions about the the midfield. I think it's interesting with Mason Mount 65 million pounds. I think he's a good player. But if you're signing him to be a number six and a double pivot, I don't think that's his role. You know, and then if you're going to play him and Bruno with Casemiro, who's kind of controlling that midfield? Who's the box-to-box player in there? I think you have one in Christian Eriksen, but without Eriksen, who's the one in those three, Mount, Bruno, and Casemiro to really control things? I think that's a question Eric Ten Hag needs to answer. So I think you look at their their wide players too. When Rashford plays through the middle, you've got Anthony. I don't think he has a lot of end product to his game. Garnacho, promising young player, but still has developing to do. So 
when Rashford is through the middle, which I don't think is his best role, I think the attack struggles too. So I think there are some serious questions uh, for Manchester United here. There's definitely a lot to be asked for Eric Ten Hag, and there is a lot to be asked of him, you know, him being a world-class manager, bringing in all these players, but when you're playing these players in just those positions that just aren't comfortable or natural for them, you mentioned you mentioned about Mason Mount being played at that kind of like the sixth role, it's something that he hasn't really played in his whole career, and it's something that he's going to have to develop into, or he changes the system completely. I think it's better to change the system and just really fit the players into where they fit in best. But we'll have to see what Ten Hag does moving forward. But let's talk about the other team now. You know, Tottenham Hotspur with a great performance. Do you think Spurs are underrated heading into this season? Because we see a lot of people, you know, putting them down even lower in the rankings. Some people even saying they're going to miss European football entirely with the loss of Harry Kane. But I still think they're a pretty solid team, although I hate to say it. Yeah, uh, I I like what I see from from Tottenham. And, uh, you know, obviously as a Chelsea fan, I don't like to say that myself. But I I have to say, Tottenham, I think they are a bit underrated heading into this season. I think they have absolutely gone the opposite direction of what we've seen in past years. You know, that stingy defensive unit attempted to be a difficult team to beat and to break down, even though they conceded over 60 goals last year. But this team is going to be on the front foot and the pressing and counter-pressing, the number of players that they commit to their pressing and counter-pressing higher up the pitch is incredible to watch. And they take big risk in their in their shape and in their football. So, And that caused Manchester United a lot of problems. They very much struggled to deal with the intensity that Tottenham brought. And if you look at someone like Casemiro, he was dribble. He's been dribbled past now six times this season, more than any number six in the Premier League. So Tottenham were able to expose him kind of like Wolves were able to. I do think that it's not going to be perfect. There's going to be teams that spank Tottenham because I think they, they take big risks and good counterattacking teams like Brentford are going to create chances. I think Brighton could roll them over, you know, the likes of Manchester City, obviously. I think there's going to be teams who who are going to put up some nasty score lines for Spurs, but I think that they're actually going to have a, a decent season. I like Basuma. I think he's going to have a good season. I like Madison. So I, I think they're going to create chances. They're going to be a very entertaining watch. They were very good here in that second half against Manchester United. Fully deserved three points. We're so used to seeing a boring Tottenham, you know, a Tottenham that no one wants to play against or people, as you mentioned, quote-unquote, want to be that difficult team to break down. But, you know, you know the meme of three-point lane instead of White Hart Lane when White Hart Lane existed. But now I like I lo- I like seeing this new style of Tottenham play. And under Postacoglu, they've really developed a new style and they feel more of a unit than they ever have in these past few years. It's going to be interesting to follow Tottenham during this season in the Premier League. Now, let's talk about my team, Man City. They go 2-2 two two with a goal by Julian Alvarez with a brilliant setup from Phil Foden. Speaking of which... Kevin De Bruyne will be out for a couple of months, 
but how good is how good was Phil Foden in this match? Because I think the difference was almost unnoticeable, and I think Pep should really utilize Phil Foden more going into the season. Yeah, I think it was a really interesting tactical game to watch. Uh, Pep went instead of the sort of three-two. Uh, build up we saw more of a 2-3 with Akanji into midfield alongside Kovacic and Rice but sorry Kovacic and Rodri uh, but it was all about Phil Foden like you said and operating that right half space kind of where De Bruyne usually operates on the half turn I thought he was absolutely wonderful and I I think with Manchester City you lose Gundogan, and I think you lose creativity in the attacking third. I don't think you gain that back with Kovacic. So I think they've lost a bit of creativity. They haven't really brought someone in who can do what Gundogan does. Uh, but you have De Bruyne, you have Bernardo Silva, and you have Phil Foden. And I think there's enough there for them to get over the line and now with Kevin De Bruyne injured, I think especially Manchester City will go into the market and look for uh, a bit more thrust in the attacking third. But Phil Foden is someone who can absolutely provide that when when asked for it. So yeah, he was he was very good. I thought it was a game that neither bo- both teams kind of limited the other. Uh, I I was a bit disappointed with Newcastle. They didn't create a lot. Uh, I thought City were were well drilled in their defensive shape. You even saw Jack Grealish tracking a lot of Kieran Trippier's runs, um, and they were solid. And then I mean Manchester City when when the chances came, they were able to put them away with with Alvarez. So I don't think City have been at their absolute best through two matches, uh, but. I think there's there's enough there to to kind of think okay you know they're the team to beat still obviously and you know that they tend to start seasons a bit slower so Pep might tinker with it with a thing or two but you know I don't doubt that you know come Christmas time they're going to be you know at the top of the table yeah I mean there's always this tradition of Christmas time pep teams, you know, especially with how City have been recently in the Christmas times. Don't expect them to start a little bit slower. I mean, we were a little bit shaky in the Super Cup final as well against Sevilla. Not at our best in these first two Premier League games, but hey, Kevin De Bruyne is injured, but Phil Foden stepped up in a big way. I think he should be an integral part of this City team this year, even though we're bringing in, we're apparently bringing in Jeremy Doku from Stade Rene for about 60 million. Great player, very flashy, but just doesn't have that end product or that um, service that he can provide like Phil Foden or Kevin De Bruyne. More of a Riyad Mahrez replacement, but this should be very interesting. And for me, hey, I'll take two wins out of two, you know? We're a little bit disappointed, though, as you mentioned, with Newcastle's lack of opportunities. I mean, as you mentioned, it, last season's two best defensive teams went head-to-head against each other, so the 1-0 scoreline isn't as shocking as people think it is. But what do you think is their best three? And I was quite disappointed with Newcastle's lack of opportunities as well. Yeah, I mean, I think Newcastle are obviously at that point where they came inside the top four last year. They obviously got the, the financial backing from the owners, uh, a brilliant stadium with brilliant fans. And I think in a game like this, it's a real opportunity for them to to test themselves against uh, the best 
in in the Premier League and, and honestly in the world in Manchester City. So I was a bit disappointed that they didn't create a lot. Um, I think they limited Manchester City and they didn't let City create a lot of clear-cut opportunities and they did a pretty good job uh, dealing with Erling Haaland too. And we, like you said, last year they were one of the best defensive teams in the league. And with the amount of big bodies they have at the back and solidity they got in, in midfield with the likes of Gumaresh, I think you're going to see that again from them. But can they really evolve in an attacking sense and against the teams with the best pressing and the best counter-pressing, can they really create something? And, and you know, I look at the front three, I don't prefer Izak through the middle as much. I, I, I like Izak to be involved in the play as much as possible. And sometimes when you're in the, as the nine, you can drift in and out of games a bit. Uh, but when he's on the left, he's constantly, he can he can receive the ball and constantly run at people, and and I think that's what that's what he's best at, and he's got the pace, he's got the power, and then I, I want to see Wilson up top as a nine. I think he's proven he could score at this level, and I think once you get Isaac, Wilson, and Almiron going as a as a front three, that's the three that I think can take can take Newcastle to the next level in an attacking sense. Remember that Izak wasn't fit for a long time last year. So if he can stay fit this year and really build a partnership with Wilson, I think you're looking at at a better Newcastle team than last year. So that's what's going to be expected of, of Eddie Howe too this year to get, I think, more out of uh, Newcastle's attacking players. We didn't really see it this weekend, but I hope we see it in uh, the near future. Yeah, I have nothing but respect for Newcastle. I mean, they are a very promising, fun, and exciting team to watch. It will be interesting to see how Newcastle perform in this season. With you got to you got to remember, they're also playing Champions League football, so they have to balance that out with the Premier League as well. Hoping for a solid season from Newcastle. Now, we did say that this would be a Premier League podcast, but we also have to talk about Chelsea, right? I mean, that's our route. That's where we all started. But, you know, some things never change. I mean, another week, another disappointing result for Chelsea. Very disappointing in a 3-1 loss against West Ham at London Stadium. Aguirre scoring a header, then Carney Chukwomenka getting it back, but then Antonio and Lucas Paqueta scoring for West Ham, making it 3-1 for the Hammers. Despite all the spending, you know, what are Chelsea still missing in their squad? Is it a specific player, a specific role, or is it just team chemistry? What exactly is Chelsea missing to really take that step back into European football? Yeah, well, I think we've seen these first two games with Chelsea that they're improved from last season. I think you can say that. I think they've been the better team in both their games, but in Classic Chelsea fashion, they just can't put the ball in the back of the net. And they can't... It's not only about putting the ball in the back of the net. It's it's about making the right decisions in the attacking third and creating definitive goal-scoring opportunities. And I don't think Chelsea do enough of that. And they haven't for a while. These first two games have been the same story. I think tactically they've looked quite good. But again, in the attacking third, it, it continues to be a struggle. I l- think that with time... Chelsea will be okay. There's a lot of investment in youth. I think that 
with what the owners are doing with signing, overhauling the squad with, with a bunch of young players and investing so much in youth, I, I think that's naturally going to take time. But I think now what Chelsea needs to look at is I don't think they need to add so much to what they already have. I think it's about now putting it together. I think, though, one thing that they need to add is another another goal-scoring threat in the attacking third. And I'm not saying that needs to be a striker. I don't think it needs to be. I like Nicholas Jackson. I think he is going to create a lot of problems for Premier League defenses. And in these first two games, there's been a few glimpses. There's been a few tight offside calls. I think he uses his pace very well. He's not someone that's just going to stand offside on you all time. He trusts his pace. And I think he's going to burn defenses. And he's going to be very threatening on the counter. But his ability to come short and link the play, to drift out wide. I think there's a lot there for Chelsea. But now without Nkunku to operate just off of him as kind of that shadow striker, who else can do that role? Now Chukwameka's out, right? So beyond Nkunku, beyond Chukwameka, who's that player? So I think they need to look at that. And then my other concern is Chelsea's wide players. I, I, I don't think there's enough of a threat there. You look at Mudrick, you look at Matueke, when they, when they beat their fullback, do they look like creating anything definitive? And so far, to me, the answer is no. And I think that's a problem for Chelsea. Raheem Sterling was very good in this match. He was outstanding. It's the best I've seen him play since he was at City. So can he take these young wingers under his wing and say, you know, this is this is how we do it and kind of, you know, give Chelsea some threat from out wide? I hope. I hope. But I think Chelsea need more of a wide threat. I think they need someone to operate off of Jackson in, you know, in the place of Nkunku. So I think there's work to do in the attacking third because, yes, they've been the better team in both these games, but they need work in the attacking third or else I think we're going to see a lot of this this season. Shout out to Raheem Sterling, you know, great performance from him. But, yeah, as you mentioned, Chukomenka going down as well. He has just gone undergone knee surgery. He'll be out for about six to eight weeks, as I'm told. Um, yeah, Nicholas Jackson really needs to kind of, how do I say this, get that service and need players that kind of fit him as well, which is why Chelsea were also looking to Michael Lise. Unfortunately, that's off the board. He's re-signed with Crystal Palace. But, you know, I think Chelsea do need that extra kind of winger, um, whether that's developing Mudrik and Madueke into that Raheem Sterling kind of player that he was against West Ham, or whether that's going to the market and finding someone maybe that won't cost too much. Whatever Chelsea do, they need to find another wide man. That's their biggest priority right now. I think everything else looked fine. As you mentioned, they were they were the better team, in my opinion, in both these games. Just James Ward-Prowse had an absolute field day for West Ham. You got to do what you got to do as Chelsea. And as you mentioned, if certain things like this don't get fixed we're going to have a problem. And I don't want to see another mediocre uh, season from Chelsea. Um, even though as a City fan, you know, it kind of hurts to see these giants in the English football fall so fast like this, you know? Yeah. 
Um, and and you know another few points at the in the opposite box for Chelsea. Uh, you know the first goal is is a pretty much a free header for a Gerd, right? Just leaps over uh, Connor Gallagher. Not the best way to deal with a set piece. Obviously, that was too easy. You know that West Ham uh, are a threat on set pieces with the big bodies that they have. And then you look at the second goal too. That was against the run of play. The Mikel Antonio one. Dizassi, Colwell, I think they can both do better in the build-up, in the lead-up to that to that strike from Mikel Antonio. You know, Chelsea are going to have to be better in both boxes too. Make sure they're not con- giving away poor goals. And poor goals change games, right? And uh, you can't do that, obviously, at this level. So that's something also for Pochettino to address. I think you got to give West Ham credit. They were quite solid. Uh, they, you know, I think Antonio Bowen did a lot of selfless, selfless work in terms of holding up the ball and relieving some pressure. Um, obviously, the big moment in the match was Enzo missing the penalty. Chelsea have a really good first half. You have the chance to go up 2-1. You miss the penalty. You know, you go into half at 1-1 and then a bit of frustration kicks in. 2-1, West Ham score against the run of play and then you're chasing, right? So that penalty changed the game. I wonder if Nicholas Jackson takes the next penalty. I think he will. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty disastrous starts to the start to the season results wise for Chelsea but you know I hope Pochettino can slowly put things together and Chelsea can be on their way and get their first three points of the season on Friday against Luton one more thing before we move on to the next big match Moises Caicedo you know a lot of people all over social media have been very quick to slander the man but we got to remind we got to remind ourselves he came into a new environment very, very, very quickly. Yeah, he to me, he's just not match fit. Didn't have a preseason, doesn't look match fit. And, uh, you know, obviously headlines will be created from from that, all the money that's spent and giving away a penalty, you know. that That's the way the world is now. But, uh, yeah, he, he's just got to get match fit, and I think the quality will, will come through. He'll bounce back. I just know he will. Last key match of the Premier League this weekend, Arsenal-Crystal Palace. It was a very, very tight game, you know, after Tomiyasu got, let's, quite, let's be honest, quite honestly, brutally sent off. You know, Arsenal completely switched their shape, went full defensive, but they held on for the 1-0 victory with the Odegaard penalty at Selhurst Park. Do you like the look of their midfield with, you know, Partey, Rice, Havertz, Odegaard, you know, with that midfield? Do you like the look of it? Because I think Arsenal looked pretty solid in this game. Yeah, um, if I'm being honest, I, I I think that it's not as free-flowing based on what I see these first two games. I think last year where you had in that midfield, Partey would sit, you know, Zinchenko would come from left back into midfield. That allowed Xhaka to go higher up the pitch and make a difference in the attacking third. And then Odegaard in that right half space, the relationship he has with Saka, he's really the one that makes some tick. I think now what you see is, you know, Partey comes from right back and then him and Rice sit and then Havertz kind of where Xhaka was and then Odegaard in his usual position. 
I don't think it's as free-flowing. I think it's solid. I think Rice gives you a lot without the ball. And his defensive recovery, his ability to close people down in midfield and contribute to the press, counter-press, I think that that's all there. And I think him and Partey in that midfield, that that's quite solid. Um, but now on the ball, I think Rice is more of a six. You know, playing with Partey does give him a bit more freedom, but I don't really think he adds a lot in, you know, higher up the field. And then you look at Havertz, and to be honest, I don't really see where Havertz's, you know, absolutely elite qualities are. I don't really think he's made a difference so far in the attacking third for Arsenal, and he didn't a lot of times at Chelsea, you know? And then there's Odegaard, who's obviously brilliant, but for me, it's not as free-flowing as as what I saw last year. I think they've added solidity, but I haven't really added as much creativity. That's what I sort of see so far. Um, Don't get me wrong, I think they're still the second-best team in the league. The wide players they have are absolutely brilliant. Saliba at the back was great in this game, especially in the second half, the amount of clearances he made. You know, Gabriel at the back, him and Saliba are very good. Um, I I definitely think there's enough there to to be in the top three at least. I I, I don't think they're going to beat Manchester City. I think they could challenge, but... You know, I, I see them. I see them in second. You took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, they looked more solid defensively. They looked more. They looked more like they were holding stuff down. But then, you know, losing Granit Xhaka over the summer and then bringing in Kai Havertz, which are two very different play styles. You know, and you expect it to just slot in and kind of work, even though you brought in Declan Rice as well. It's 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 kind of it's kind of clunky if you know what I mean. It doesn't feel as free flowing, as fluid, and as creative as the midfield was last season. And obviously, as you said, don't get us wrong. We still think they're a very solid midfield. I still think they're at the very least a top three team in the Premier League, but it just isn't as creative or explosive as it was last year. And I think that that's something. The Arsenal fans have to be a little bit wary of, but I think they will be okay in the long run. I still think they're a top three team in the Premier League. Yeah, and and if I can add something too, I think Crystal Palace was quite good here. You know, they lost Wilfred Zaha. They didn't have Elise, uh for this match. I thought Jordan Ayew was very good with and without the ball. They had a counter-attacking threat. They just couldn't quite finish it in the attacking third. They got into good areas. But the decision-making, the the lack of connection, I felt, especially in the first half with the four attacking players. You know, I don't think Jeffrey Schlupp gives you a lot going forward. Um, so, you know, having Elise back will be a boost when he does come back for them. That'll be huge. And then Eze's going to have to have to have a good season. I felt he grew into the game as it as it went along, had a better second half. Uh, but I, th- I thought they were decent here. And like Roy Hodgson teams always are, they were quite solid and difficult to to break down. So, yeah, it was a good game. I think ultimately Arsenal did deserve to win the end. They had a bit more quality in the attacking third and created uh, the better chances. Uh, but it was definitely a good game. And Sellers Park's always a tough place to go 
uh, especially when it's the first home game for uh, their Palace side. Absolutely. That wraps up the Premier League, but we'll just recap the other matches really quickly. Nottingham Forest beating Sheffield United at home 2-1. If you guys don't know, Luton Town and Burnley has been postponed because Kenilworth Road is still going under renovations to fit the Premier League standards. Liverpool beating Bournemouth 3-1. Brighton beats Wolves 4-1 away from home. Fulham loses to Brentford 3-0. As you guys know, Tottenham beats United 2-0. City beat Newcastle 1-0. Aston Villa coming up with a 4-0 victory over Everton. West Ham beating Chelsea 3-1. And Arsenal winning at Selhurst Park 1-0. That wraps up the Premier League, the English Premier League. Now let's move into the Canadian Premier League this weekend. Alright, that concludes our recap of the English Premier League for this weekend. Now let's move on to the Canadian Premier League. It's our first time really talking about the Canadian Premier League in depth on this podcast. I'm super excited. I know you're more excited than I am because you are a huge fanatic of the Canadian Premier League. I'm still getting into it, you know, still a, still a pretty much new fan of the Canadian Premier League. So I know you'll have a lot more to talk about the CPL than I do. But let's briefly go over the CPL matches. First, Forge, they continue to stumble at Tim Hortons Field after a 1-1 draw with Halifax on Saturday. So I want you to really break this down for me, you know, what's going wrong with Forge? And do you really like Achinoti Johnson in the midfield, or would you rather play someone else, or would you rather play him in a different position? Yeah, obviously Forge have really struggled at at home this year, and the form at Tim Hortons, Hortons Field hasn't been good, and if it wasn't for a late Baribanga, beautiful free kick, by the way, that kind of dipped at the the last moment, which was beautiful. If it wasn't for that free kick, uh, you know, I think the storyline would be would be a lot different coming out of this, and and Halifax would be maybe being talked about as title contenders by uh, a lot of people, and you know, there it would be crisis time and in, uh, in in Hamilton. But they did manage to get a draw, which is which I think is huge. I think this year it's it's been tough for Forge so far. I think in an attacking sense, their wide players is is what's concerned me the most. David Schwanier, three goals this year. Tristan Borges, one. I mean, those are seriously low numbers for two of the best wide players in the league. And, you know, they're players that could have moved on, I think, and have had the quality to move on. But chose to stick around and we haven't quite seen the same production that we've seen in past years. And I think that's concerning uh, for Smiriotis and that's that's concerning uh, for Forge's title bid as they look to win their fourth in five years. The good news is for them is Terrain Campbell is scoring. He's got 10. He's tied for the golden boot lead with, with Ollie Bassett. On the midfield, I think that's a little bit of an issue too because we've seen now Smiriotis tinker with it. So now he's putting Ashen Yodi Janssen in this sort of John Stones role. So pushing him into midfield. We know Smiriotis is a big f- fan of Pep. And so he's looking to push Janssen in that midfield alongside a Jabberpore. And then you that forms, you know, pretty much a box midfield. Becker is in that la- left half space 
you'll see Noah Jensen in that right half space or or Sissoko. This year it's been more more Jensen. Um, but what I've seen is I'd say more not as much creativity in in the team with Janssen in midfield. I think it makes them pretty press resistant because of Janssen and Hajabrapur's qualities in possession, building out from the back. But in terms of creating chances, I think they were more creative last year when Becker would sit alongside Hajabrapur and then they would have, you know, Borges in a half space. Sissoko was brilliant last year. Sissoko and Schwanier's partnership last year was awesome. I don't think we we've quite seen that this year. And I think they've lost a bit of that creativity. And, you know, you see Smirionis tinkering with it. And I, th- I think it's a bit concerning. But this is Forge. And what's interesting is that last year they didn't win the regular season. And towards the end of the year, people are questioning, do they know their best 11? And there's questions surrounding them, but then they come alive in the playoffs. So will that be the case here again? We shall see. But I think there's definitely questions that that can be asked of Forge for sure. Yeah, Forge currently sitting in fourth in the Canadian Premier League. You know, you know Forge, you know, they always come alive in the playoffs, but we'll have to see if that's the case because there definitely are a lot of questions being asked of Forge right now as we speak. But, you know, grabbing that one point is massive. Let's talk about Halifax, though. You know, I think that Halifax this season are regular season, like maybe not regular season, but potentially they could win the playoffs, I think, Halifax. I think they've had a bit of a resurgence. I think they're looking pretty strong, but I want to know your opinions on whether Halifax are regular season and or playoff title contenders. Yeah, I, I, I don't think they're going to win the regular season, uh, to be honest, but I I think they got a chance to, to, win the, to win the playoff title. I really do. It's not over in the regular season. The, the table's extremely tight, but... I really like this team and you know Patrice Geyser they went their first eight games without a win in the CPL this season eight games but they've stuck to their identity and that group I think has really come together and now they've added a bit of stardust to that group Jean Morelli almost feels like a new signing Daniel Henry you bring him him in at the back his leadership on and off the field and his quality that he brings you add Perutza on loan from TFC. Massimos Farin has been one of the best wide players in the league this season. And all of a sudden, you think, hmm, you know, they, they can really get up the table here and, and potentially win the league. And Ottawa and Halifax have the most points in their last four games of any CPL team. Halifax is on a run. So And they're winning a lot of home games too, which is big. They're getting a few points now on the road. They struggled, you know, really at the beginning of the season, getting points on the road. Now they're getting points on the road. This team is serious. And what's interesting is that Geyser's called it a two-year plan that they just kind of want to, you know, maybe make the playoffs this year, play some decent football, and then next year really take, take the next step. I think they can make the jump this year. Why can't they win the whole thing? I think they they have enough. 
And I think in this match, they showed their resiliency without the ball. They were very difficult to break down. They didn't create a lot. They took the chance when it came. And they'll be disappointed they didn't they didn't come out with three points. I think they would have they would have deserved it. Uh, but I think this team is going to be very very difficult to to play against in the playoffs. And I think for Halifax, get up the table as much as you can so you can play as many of those games at home in the playoffs. That's going to be really really big for them. So I I like the look of Halifax. I really do. Halifax really showing us that, you know, the start of the season doesn't necessarily mean everything. They've been on a complete tear recently, and I would not be surprised. I, I'm actually, maybe I'd be maybe a little bit surprised if they won the regular season, but I think they could definitely make a run in the playoffs. They could definitely be title contenders, and who knows, maybe even the regular season, they could walk away with being first place in the regular season. My words just got messed up there. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to Vancouver over Pacific. You know, they get a huge derby win over their rivals Pacific. What has been missing in Pacific's attack over the past weeks? Do you think they lack a potent goal scorer? Yeah, so Pacific not on the greatest run here. They've lost three of their their last five. And they were top of the table and it looked like they were going to run away with it at, at one point. But that hasn't been the case. Now Cavalry's caught up. Ottawa's caught up. I mean, you look at the table, there's four points separating first and fifth. So all these teams are right in it, but Pacific really looked like they were the ones to beat. Now it's, it's fallen off a bit. Um, I, I, I just wonder if their attack really has a killer. They have a lot of different goal scorers this year. They have a lot of depth. But do they have someone that in the biggest moment is going to make the difference? And you could say that that would be Salouf, who has five goals and seven assists this year, which is brilliant total. But they're more using him as an impact player off the bench now. So he's actually not really starting games. So... You know, they're waiting for games to open up a bit more than for him to come on and affect the game. So who is it? Like the number nine, too, is they've kind of gone back and forth. Angaro, Daniels, Reed, right? I'd, I'd really like to see Angaro kind of take the shirt and go with the number nine position. But it hasn't quite gone that way yet uh, for, for Angaro. So... I, I wonder, because you look at Cavalry and there's Moosey who can make something out of nothing at any given moment. And Forge, Campbell's been scoring, right? Ottawa have Oliver Bassett. So who's going to really make the difference in the biggest moment for Pacific? I think Pacific have the best midfield in the league. Obviously, they have Didich, Amir, Jaguar at the back, which is maybe the best center back partnership in the league. I think so. But at the top of the field, who's really going to make a difference? Even from wider areas, who's going to make the biggest difference? Sometimes their deliveries into the box aren't the greatest. And I think you saw that in the weekend's game against Vancouver. So I I think that Pacific are definitely going to make the playoffs, but I'm not so sure 
about them winning, winning the league. This was a very chaotic game. Also, I mean, you know, lead changes, uh, Pacific up 2-1, Vancouver make it 2-2. Pacific have a brilliant chance to go up 3-2. They missed that. Vancouver makes 3-2. Credit to Vancouver. They were great. Big Derby win. Uh, their first Derby win at home against uh, their rival specific. So big moment for them. And, uh, you know, this season is for them, it's just about continuing to build cohesion within that squad and look towards the future. And I mean, Batar, who scored two goals, is someone who I really like. And I think they got to get him going a bit, a bit more. Hopefully we see more of uh, Batar's quality for the rest of the season and then into next season because I think he could be someone to really guide that attack. Questions definitely need to be asked for Pacific, but I still think they're a lock for playoffs. It's just a matter of how well will they perform in the playoffs if they don't have that reliable goal scorer that all these other clubs do. It'll be definitely interesting to see what Pacific does from here, but let's move on here to the Ollie Bassett Show. Atletico Ottawa on an absolute roll, similar to Halifax here. You know, I think that Bassett is the frontrunner for MVP right now. I don't know if you'll agree with me, but let's go a little bit into depth there. First, let's talk about Ottawa. You know, I think Bassett's the frontrunner for MVP. Want to know your opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think I think he is. Right now, I think he's taken his game to another level this year. 10 goals and 3 assists from midfield. It's the most goal contributions in the league this year. And it's it's from midfield. I mean, he is the most valuable player to their team. And I for me, I would I would have him as MVP right now. He was brilliant on Friday against Valor, scored a brace, and I think Ottawa are a real threat. I, I would not want to play this team. They have the most points of any team in their last eight matches, 19 points in their last eight matches, so averaging over two a game in their last eight. And they have the most informed player in the league right now. Um, they've started, they've really improved their home form. They were always a good away team because the away games suit them, sitting back, counterattacking. But now they've got their home form going and that that's kind of what I think separates them and maybe Halifax a bit as I think Halifax needs to be at home a bit more, but I, I think Ottawa home or away, you, you don't want to play them right now. I, I think they can do serious damage in the playoffs and it's what Carlos Gonzalez has built there, right? Like they, they absorb pressure better than anyone else. They love defending. They sit in their in their four one four one or their four four two, whatever the shape may be, but the principles are the same. Everyone is committed to the cause, right? You defend in a low block, everyone has to do their job. Wide players covering a fullback, dropping into a back six, midfielders dropping and plugging gaps when needed, front players dropping back and helping out, marking defensive midfielders, whatever it may be. And then when they win the ball, they have the the appetite, the desire to make eighty yard sprints and and go down the field. And they 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 could they could do it in a matter of a few passes, right? It doesn't take long for them 
to get from their own defensive third to the attacking third. They go and in 10 seconds, they're in on goal, right? And Bassett is so key to that from his timing and the runs he can make into the attacking third and the relationship I think he's built with Jean and Yelassi and now Sam Salter coming into it. So this Ottawa team, I I think they're gonna cause some damage. They were they were very they were very good again on Friday night and they uh they deserve the three points. Absolutely. I think Ottawa is the team to avoid right now. They just look so strong and no one really wants to play them. I mean, it's it's the case of like, you know, King's Court when you're little, when you're playing soccer, like in the fields, like you don't want to play against them. <laughs> That's just how it is with Ottawa right now. And Ali Bassett really being the main focal point of that Ottawa team who likes to sit back and who likes to really kind of play everything through him. And the fact that he has that many goal contributions as a midfielder, not even an attacking third player per se, is... An absolutely incredible feat, and he is my pick for MVP right now. Let's talk about Valor for a little bit, though, because there's this this big question. Are Valor dead and buried for this season? Because I think with their recent form that this season for them is finished. Yeah, I think think they're done. I think they're done. They're at 20 points. You know, you're looking at 9 out of a playoff spot. They only have 8 games left. They have the worst attack in the league, 17 goals. I mean, that's even behind Vancouver. So, yeah, they've they've had real problems in an attacking sense. Um, I think they need a number nine. Uh, but, But also, I think their wide players, too, haven't added a lot of end product. So I think it's kind of across the board. They've obviously had a lot of injuries, I think. At the start of the season, I was looking at their midfield and I thought, hmm, if you can get Campbell and Gutierrez in there consistently, they're going to they're gonna at least be in the mix. But they've had a lot of injury issues. Campbell's had to fill in at fullback a lot. And it's just kind of unbalanced things in the team. And at the top of the pitch, they just, they really, really struggle. Uh, so I think they're dead and buried. And it, it's it's going to be uh, on to next season, looking towards the future uh, for them, I think, soon. Also, they lost Oheen in, at the beginning of the year. He was someone who looked good early on and then injured, and, you know, that was a, a player they lost. So injuries haven't done them any favors, uh, but it, they've, they've also been the worst attack uh, in the league. So I think they're done. Yeah, very underwhelming season from Valor. And if you're a Valor fan, you just got to forget the season, go into the next season, because I think that they're just completely into dust now. You you can't really catch up, in my opinion. Moving on to the last, but certainly not least, match of this weekend in the Canadian Premier League. You know, our hometown team, York United, playing Cavalry. But unfortunately, they take the L, 2-1 loss to Cavalry at Spruce Meadows. Are York in trouble? Because I think they had a pretty solid start to the season, but then, you know, problems have started to come up. So I want to know your opinion on if York United should really take a look at some problems that they may have. Yeah, yeah, I think they are in trouble. Um, I'm going to say this right now. I, I would be very surprised if York made the playoffs. I don't expect Cavalry, Pacific, or Forge to miss the playoffs. And then you look at what Ottawa and Halifax are doing. They're the two most informed teams in the league. 
and you know as as we just talked about and one thing i i want to point out to home records which is very important in this league it's hard to win away from home so home points really matter halifax and ottawa halifax is second in terms of most points at home ottawa third yorka last so i think that's a big problem uh for them and you know, you look at the, the the players that Halifax have added, what Bassett's doing for Ottawa, York just don't don't seem they're they're up to up to that level. And you know, I think their strikers have been very underwhelming this season. Di Rosario, Brian Wright hasn't quite worked out. Um, the wide players have been decent. But I think there's been times where there's where there's been a lack of connection in the attacking third, and I think Martin Ash could could do a better job of getting the best out of York's attacking players. Um, they've been decent at the back, but I just I look at what Halifax and Ottawa are doing, and I think York are going to seriously find it difficult to get into the playoffs. They didn't do half bad in this game, even though they went down early. I thought a lot of the things they did in the first half were, were good. And actually some of their pressing was quite good and they won the ball in good areas. But in the attacking third, just a, a lack of connection. Wide players get on the ball. Is there really an option to come into midfield and play a one-two with someone? You know, when Babuli's dri- driving out of defense, are there options? And I don't think there always are uh, for York. And I think you saw that in this game and and when you you know are are having a better moment in games you, you need to to make a count and and York didn't here and and then on the flip side with cavalry with with the quality they have in Akio in Musi in Camargo and Bevin they didn't really need to be at their best to get to get the three points so i i am concerned concerned about York yeah, I mean, the fact that Mobabuli isn't always available, you know, as you mentioned, the strikers being very overwhelming, I was very unimpressed with how De Rosario has played this season. You know, last year, you know, he was a front runner for MVP, and then what happened this season? You know, he's kind of kind of disappeared. Um, just a lot of things just haven't gone York's way this season. Let's move on to Cavalry, though, because, you know, they're really the talk of the town right now. Do you think the Cavalry has the best front line in the league? Yes or no? Yeah, well, the front line this weekend propelled them to the top of the league with with that win. And I think they do have the best front line. I think Bevan's been very good this year. He's scored eight goals, three assists. He's got 11 goal contributions. I think Musi is the most difficult player to deal with in this league. I mean, the things he can do 1v1 are incredible. And I think he can really take the next step. I think he can do a bit more actually in front of goal. And I think his numbers can be a bit higher. Uh, and that'll really allow him to take a step, the next step uh, after the Premier League, the Canadian Premier League for him. But I mean, I think he he's an incredible player. Uh, Camargo's been very good this year at the 10. Gote and Tigny wasn't available for this one, but he's been a threat on the left-hand side. If you put Tigny, Camargo, Moosey, Bevan on the pitch together, is there is there a front line better than that? I mean, that that 
no front line scares me like that one does. So, you know, I think I think Cavalry have, have a real shot at winning the league this year. I think they can win the regular season. I I, I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to play them with that with that front line. You know, they signed a Keo too. Things didn't work out for him in Europe, but he's proven he could be a threat in the Canadian Premier League and the pace, the power, the one v one ability that he brings. And then you got people like Frazier Aird and Ben Fisk who can do a job. You know, you're even looking at serious depth in an attacking sense for for cavalry and a well-coached team too, Tommy Wielden Jr. They've become a bit more of a possession-based team this year. So I like cavalry. I think in the end, in this game, they were the more threatening team in the attacking third and they have a bit more quality at the top end of the pitch. And that showed. So I think cavalry fans should be very optimistic. Yeah, great showing out there from Cavalry. And that wraps up the Canadian Premier League for this weekend. Just to look ahead for next weekend, York United will be playing Vancouver at home. Halifax are playing Valor at home. Atletico are playing Forge at home. And Cavalry will be playing Pacific at home. Right. That wraps up the Canadian Premier League, but we do have one more thing to talk about just very, very briefly. The League's Cup. You know, Lionel Messi coming into Miami right away making an impact, leading them to victory in the League's Cup. But the big question here, you know, they added Lionel Messi, they added Jordi Alba, Sergio Busquets. Does Inter-Miami make the MLS playoffs, yes or no? I am going to say yes. They're at 18 points, and that puts them 14 out of the playoff spots. So it's going to be tough, but I mean, what Messi has done at Miami, it's, it's incredible. They were the worst team in MLS and they won the League's Cup and deserved to win the League's Cup. And Messi was absolutely brilliant. But it's not just about Lionel Messi and Sergio Busquets and Jordi Alba. It's about the impact that they're having on everyone else too. Like I highlight Robert Taylor and what he's been doing too in this League's Cup run and and a few games that I've watched Miami. He has been amazing. The lift that Messi's given to that club, to everyone around that club, the staff, the players, the fans, the management, David Beckham, right? Like, it's brilliant. And now all these eyeballs from around the world are on Inter-Miami, right? And the MLS. So I think it'd be a great story if Miami were to get into the playoffs and then at that point, why can't they win the league? I mean, it's crazy to talk about a team potentially winning the league when they're 15th in the Eastern Conference with five wins after 22 games. But that's just what Lionel Messi does. So what an effort from Lionel Messi uh, in this tournament. Well-deserved for Inter-Miami. TFC, uh, I'm sorry, but you are now going to finish last in the MLS I don't even want to talk about Toronto FC with how abysmal they've been. They have three wins in 25 games. That is not something to be proud of. And they have three games. They have three games. They've played three more games than Inter-Miami. So technically in points, although Miami may be dead last in the league right now with 18, they still have three more games instead of TFC. You know, that's something that, you know, as garbage as TFC have been this season, you know, Inter-Miami with Messi... And the impact that Messi's had, not just 
with his teammates on the whole of MLS itself, it's scary. And now TFC, obviously, yeah, they're the worst team in the league. But Miami, they could definitely make a push for the playoffs. It's going to be tough. But I don't think there's been some like ever been something that Lionel Messi has been afraid of. He's always ready to you know give his hundred ten percent you know, and we just see the Messi magic happen every single time. And I just think that you can never count out a team that has Lionel Messi in it. Just like how in basketball you can never really count out like LeBron James. It's a very similar impact that Lionel Messi has. He just elevates all of his teammates to play better. You know, it's just the messy effect. It's hard to explain it. Yeah, I mean, 10 goals in seven games. He scored in every game in this tournament. I mean, some of the goals were were ridiculous. A few from outside the box. Well, a bunch from outside the box. But a few from outside the box in open play. A few from outside the the box free kicks, right? Like that that one against Dallas to tie the game in in, uh, the quarters to tie the game. When it was 4-3, but like, so clutch. And then outside the box from 30 yards out against Philly. Um, and then, you know, the goal to put Miami up 1-0 against Nashville, which he took on his left foot and bent it. Uh, I, I, I don't know what to say. The guy is just not human. So, I mean, what a treat to have him in the MLS. And I just hope everyone enjoys it. You know, I think if this doesn't solidify the position that Messi is the greatest soccer player of all time even further, I don't know what to tell you. I've been saying this ever since Messi won the World Cup. I think he's the greatest soccer player to ever live on the planet. And the fact that he's in our local league, let me remind you, is is crazy. And I just think that the performances that he'd be putting out in Miami and just the efforts that he's put in and just the fact that he just elevates the play of everyone around him is just such an incredible thing to witness and we have to appreciate the fact that Lionel Messi is still playing while we're still living like that's still something that we've got to really appreciate because when it's gone we don't have that kind of messy magic anymore which will be a sad day don't want to think about it but we got to enjoy it while it lasts all right I know that was a very, very long first episode of the new reformed True North Soccer podcast format. We hope you guys enjoyed it. I mean, I I personally enjoyed talking about a lot more different things, like not specifically just Chelsea, but also the Premier League, Canadian Premier League, and just trending topics in world football. I really did appreciate, and I did actually enjoy talking about that. We'll be back next week. We'll be recapping the other Premier League matches, Canadian Premier League, and some other trending headlines in world soccer.